Over the next few messages, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I've been doing this for five years, and most of you know zero about me. But I promise not to make anything up to make myself sound more interesting. But the, the first thing that I remember is some man grabbing me by the feet and holding me upside down and smacking me on the butt. Nah, not really. But that memories my memory is not that good. I sometimes have trouble remembering what I did this morning to say nothing about what happened to me 72 years ago. But I grew up in a small, and I mean small, town in western New York, about 50 miles kind of southwest of Buffalo, uh, right on Lake Erie. And by small, I mean one traffic light. And I don't know, maybe 500, 700 people, something like that. It's gotten smaller over the years. Uh, I went to the Ripley Central School. It was kindergarten through 12th grade, all in one building. The uh, 7 through 12 was upstairs, and all the others were downstairs in the building. And, you know, growing up, our house sat about I don't know, maybe 50 yards from four New York Central and two nickel plate railroad tracks. And, you know, the noise of that never bothered me. I mean, that's what I grew up with. I had lived there forever, and so I didn't have any problem with it. I mean, in the summertime, I'd sleep outside in the backyard, even closer, and, you know, that was pretty much it. Uh, used to play on the the tracks, uh, and the, the the stones. If you're familiar with the, the stones that are on the railroad tracks, uh, we'd have an old bat that used, and you know, would be batting stones across the tracks. Uh, we lived right next to. Uh, it's called Forsyth Bridge. It was on Route 20, and it was where Route 20 uh, went over top of these railroad tracks and uh, I remember that the coal locomotives going through with that thick black smoke just rolling out of them. Uh, we used to play in the woods, play in a neighbor's creek, uh, just ride bike everywhere, rode bikes around our neighbors. They had a, a big circular driveway and we would ride around and around on that. <clears throat> And speaking of neighbors, I remember this neighbor, uh, the older woman, the old woman that lived there. And she accused me one time of stepping on her tulips. I didn't do it, okay? I really did not. Okay, but she said, I'm going to skin you and boil you in oil. I thought, oh, that's a nice lady. But she never could catch me doing it because I didn't do it. But just up the road was my one grandmother, called her Gaga, not Lady Gaga by any means. Um, but she had a, a fruit stand um, there in the summer in a small four-unit motel. And so, you know, we'd go up there all the time. Um, my father's mother, my Grand Michelle, excuse me, she lived with my aunt down Long Island, and she would come sometimes and stay with us for a week or a couple of weeks or whatever, and I would play sick, you know, so I could get 
to go home and be there with my grandmother. So it wasn't a great life, but it, it helped make me who I am. And if we think of our lives growing up and what we endured, it's helped to make us all who we are. Let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks that you know you know us and love us just like we are. And Lord, that we live in different places and grow up in different circumstances. But Lord, we all hopefully come to one time in our life when we know that we need you because that's the most important thing we could ever do. So Father, as we look at your word, uh, Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to uh, see some things that we maybe have missed in the past or maybe find something new because your word is fresh to us every day. So Father, open our minds, our hearts, our ears, and let your Holy Spirit guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be looking at the book of 1 John. But before we go to the first chapter, I'll get some info on John. Uh, some of what we know, or we think we know, uh, about John are assumptions. We, we do know he was James's brother. He was a fisherman, and he was part of that inner circle. Now, John refers to himself in his gospel as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, so James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Uh, they were referred to and sons of thunder. Now, some possibilities is he may have been a first cousin to Jesus because his mother may have been Mary's sister. And there's some scriptures that kind of do suggest that. So now we're going to look at John's first letter. John doesn't identify himself as the author, but in John, um, in 2 John and 3 John, he calls himself an elder. Uh, there's several things found in 1 John that indicate that he is the author of these letters. Uh, just several several similarities to his gospel, some of the same phrases, and I'll try to connect those dots as we go along. But it's believed that this letter was written uh, between 85 and 95 AD. So John was getting up there in years. From reading the letter, it's pretty obvious that he was writing to believers. The letter doesn't tell us who they were or where they lived. And so since no names or places were given, he may have just sent this to several different places, kind of like a form letter. You know, he's sending out, you can get from, you know, the Billy Graham Ministries or whatever it might be. Um, but just send it out so people would know better what they need to be doing, how they need to be living their lives. So apparently those he was writing to were dealing with some of the, the Gnostic teachings. Now, if you're not familiar with Gnosticism, it's false teachings that were very loosely based on Christianity and a whole lot added to it, kind of like, you know, the, the New Age movement of that time. So let's go kind of verse by verse and start out with 1 John 1.1. New Living Translation says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. So John is talking about a very personal 
relationship with Jesus. As you recall, Jesus had described himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, and he uses the words we and our in this verse, unknown who he's referring to, but quite possibly meaning the other apostles, those who had been with Jesus, not meaning uh, someone who was with him while he was writing this. So John starts out by pointing out the eternity of Jesus. He says that Jesus existed from the beginning, something to something that it took John a while to understand. John's referring to Jesus as the word of life. And that takes us to his gospel in the first chapter, the first four verses. He says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and was God, leaving little doubt about who Jesus was to John. Well, then in the second verse, it says, this one who is life itself was revealed to us, and excuse me, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. Okay, obviously talking about the resurrected Savior, this one who is life itself. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So John had seen that life, witnessed that life. And in John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Okay, Jesus, of course, was talking about eternal life, not physical life. So in the third verse, he says, we proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John wanted to emphasize that his experience with Jesus was in the first person. Okay, the, the Greek for fellowship, there is koinonia, meaning a companion, partnership, associate. Okay, so John's association with Jesus was not just some casual thing. Even though there was hundreds, possibly, that followed Jesus around from place to place, Jesus was one of the twelve, and then he was one of the three. In verse 4, I'm going to use the message. It says, our motive for writing this is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too, so your joy will double our joy. Have you ever seen a movie or TV or play and just really enjoyed it? And you want to let your friends know? Have you ever had a worship experience that just really, really moved you? And you want others to have that same encounter, to feel a closeness with the Lord? That's what John was meaning. The, the Greek for joy means cheerful, gladness, delight. So John knew what his relationship with Jesus meant to him. He knew the joy that there was in that relationship and the joy in the seeing the resurrected Christ. And he wanted others to share in those feelings. 
Again, John was echoing what Jesus had said in John 15, 11. He said, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy and your joy will overflow. Some translations say that your joy will be complete. Sharing Jesus with others brings great joy. John was growing old and knew he would not be able to share in person. So writing this letter was the next best thing, the best way for him to, to get across the message that he needed to get to people. Okay, in, in uh, chapter one, verse five says, this is a message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Now there's several references to light and darkness in the gospels, especially in John's gospel. In chapter three, verses 19 to 21. Okay, the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. In other words, God's light equals Jesus. John refers to this again in the book of Revelation. Chapter 21, verse 23 says, The city has no need for a sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. God and his Son will be the light that we need in eternity. <coughs> and going on to verse 6. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. You can't have one foot in the world and the other foot in eternity with the Lord. It's like, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. Okay, you, either you are a believer or you are not. Either you are a follower of Jesus Christ or you are not. Like in Matthew 25, when the sheep and the goats get separated, okay, there's just two places to go, to the right or to the left. Okay, no, you can't stand to the side and say, I'll find a place for you. It's either heaven or hell, smoking or non-smoking. Matthew 7 gives us a good description of what lies ahead for some. Verses 21 to 23 says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed, performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Now, I'm certainly not in a place to judge anyone, but there may be many who seem to be serving the Lord that will find themselves in that position at the judgment. I just need to make sure I'm not one of them. Okay, 1 John 1 verse 7 speaks to this as well, because John wrote, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, 
cleanses us from all sin. Now, many versions translate living as walk. So instead of saying we're living in the light, we're walking in the light. The Greek means to follow or to be occupied with or to walk with. I know that I need to be occupied with the things of the Lord. We need to be occupied with the things of the Lord. The world keeps inventing more and more distractions. Some of them seem like they're pretty good things, but if they get between us and what God wants us doing, they become interference. What are these sort of good distractions? It could be work. There's certainly nothing wrong with working hard at your job until it becomes a distraction. It could be play. You know, maybe you just bought a new boat and you know, you're spending all the time you can on, the, on that boat and you know, Sunday is gonna be a nice day and so that's where I need. And sometimes a distraction can be our family. Okay, it can take us away from what we need to be doing for the Lord. And one, another thing that's sometimes a distraction for what we're doing for the Lord is church, okay? Because sometimes the church can have us doing things that, you know, they're really good things, maybe they're really benefiting some people, but it's maybe not what the Lord really wants you to be doing. The next verse is something maybe many can relate to. It says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. I remember seeing a short video with Kirk Cameron. He was stopping people on the street and asking, do you consider yourself a sinner? And, you know, that's not something you get thrown in your face every day. And so most people would say, well, no. Then we would ask him a series of questions. You know, do you always tell the truth? You know, has there ever been a time that you maybe told it just a little white lie? It seemed pretty harmless. Do you always go the speed limit and obey the, the laws of man? Do you always give your best at work? Okay, from the time you punch in to the time you punch out. Okay, you're working all that time. So a lot of people found themselves admitting to some of these things. And so they'd say, well, Kirk would say, I guess that makes you a sinner. Well, we all have sin in our lives. There's no big sins and little sins. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. Verse 9 tells us what to do about that. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. God is so, so, so ready to forgive us. I like the way the message puts this verse. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. Psalm 103, David tells us, he's removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. In other words, never going to meet, never going to be seen again. If you've confessed a sin and asked for forgiveness and then asked God about that sin, he'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, what, what sin? I need to understand something. 
maybe we need to understand something. God wants to have fellowship with us. He sent his son to die so we could be in fellowship with him. That's how important fellowship with God is to him. I don't know you, and I do know that I probably wouldn't send one of my sons to die for you. I have three sons. I like God, he only had one, but I'm probably not gonna send one of my sons to die for you. John finishes off this chapter in, in verse 10. It says, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Calling God a liar? Not good ground to be standing on, I don't think. Jesus tells us in John 8 where the lies come from. In verse 44, it says, You are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do evil, the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus was giving us this sharp rebuke to some of his Jewish opponents, those claiming to be sons of Abraham. We can claim we have no sin, but God is aware of all that we do, all that we say, and all that we think. We will never get anything past him. It's really pretty foolish to think so. John Samus wrote a familiar hymn. It's based on this chapter. He wrote it back in the late 1800s. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says, we will do. Where he go, where he sends, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. There indeed is no other way. Let's pray. Lord, I lift up my brothers and sisters that know you, that love you, that serve you, and that, Lord, are hoping to spend eternity with you. But Lord, sometimes we get that sin in our lives that kind of puts a gap in between us and you. And Lord, only you can take that away. And that only happens when we ask for forgiveness. And so Father, if we're at a point where we are in need of more forgiveness, which is every day, Lord, help us to come to you and ask for that. And Lord, if there's one that maybe doesn't know you, hasn't uh, maybe heard much about you or maybe heard about you for years but doesn't have a relationship with you let today be the day that that relationship begins let today be the day that they give their lives to you let today be the day that they recognize that Jesus is indeed your son and that he died for their sins he didn't just die for the preacher's sins the missionary's sins or the nun's sins anybody else, he died for everybody's sins. And so, Lord, help them to turn their lives over to you.
kind of like this. Dear Father, I'm a sinner and I know I need a Savior. And you sent your Son as that Savior to die on the cross for my sins. And then he rose from the dead and he's coming back again. Lord, I know the only way I can be ready is to, to know you and to love you and to have that relationship. So I turn my life over to you. Forgive me of my sins and help me to live my life for you. In Jesus' wonderful, precious name, amen and amen.